Section 21 of Canada, the Empire of the North. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Canada, the Empire of the North by Agnes C. Lott from 1698 to 1713 part 1 while frontenac was striking terror into the heart of new england with his french canadian bushrovers the life of the people went on in the same grooves spite of a dozen raids on the iroquois cantons there was still danger from the warriors of the mohawk but the Iroquois braves had found a new stamping ground. Instead of attacking Canada, they now crossed westward to war on the alleys of the French, the tribes of the Illinois and the Mississippi, and with them traveled their liege friends, English traders from New York and Pennsylvania and Virginia. The government of Canada continued to be a despotism, pure and simple. The Supreme Council consisting of the Governor, the Intendant, the Bishop, and a different times from three to twelve councillors, stood between the people and the King of France, transmitting the King's will to the people, and the people's wants to the King, and the laws enacted by the Council ranged all the way from criminal decrees to such petty regulations as a modern city wardman might pass laws enacted to meet local needs but subject to the veto of an absent ruler who knew absolutely nothing of the local needs exhibited all the absurdities to be expected the king of france desires the sovereign council to discourage the people from using horses which are supposed to cause laziness as it is needful the inhabitants keep up their snowshoe travel so necessary in their wars if in two years the numbers of horses do not decrease they are to be killed for meat then comes a law that reflects the presence of the bishop at the governing board horses have become the pride of the country bow and the gay to be ribboned carrioles are the distraction of the village curé men are forbidden to gallop their horses within a third of a mile from the church on sundays new laws regulations arrests are promulgated by the public crier crying up and down the highway to sound of trumpet and drum chest puffed out with self-importance gold braid enough on the red-coated regalia to overawe the simple habitants though the companies holding monopoly over trade yearly change monopoly is still all-powerful in new france so all-persuasive that in seventeen forty one in order to prevent smuggling to defraud the company of the indies it enacted that people using chintz covered furniture must upholster their chairs so that the stamp lacie de indies will be visible to the inspector the matter of money is a great trouble to new france beaver is coin of the realm on the st lawrence 
and though this beaver is paid for in French gold, the precious metal almost at once finds its way back to France for goods, so that the colony is without coin. Government cards are issued as coin, but as Europe will not accept card money, the result is that gold still flows from New France, and the colony is flooded with paper money worthless away from Quebec. As of old, the people may still plead their own cases in lawsuits before the Sovereign Council, but now the privilege of caste and class and feudalism begin to be felt, and it is enacted that gentlemen may plead their own cases before the Council only when wearing their swords. Young men are urged to qualify as notaries. In addition to the title of Sieur, baronies are created in Canada, foremost among them that of Le Moyes of Montreal. The feudal seigneur now has his coat of arms emblazoned on the church pew where he worships, on his coach door, and on the stone entrance to his mansion. The habitants are compelled to grind their wheat at his mill, to use his great bake oven, to patronize his tannery. The seigneurial mansion itself is taken on more of pomp. Cherry and mahogany furniture have replaced homemade, and the rough cast walls are now covered with imported tapestries. Not gently does a sovereign council deal with delinquents. In 1735 it is enacted of a man who suicided that the corpse be tied to a cart, dragged on a hurdle, head down, face to ground, through the streets of the town, to be hung up by the feet an object of derision, then cast into the river in default of a cesspool. Criminals who evade punishment by flight are to be hanged in effigy. Montreal citizens are ordered to have their chimneys cleaned every month and their houses provided with ladders. Also, the inhabitants of Montreal must not allow their pigs to run in the street, and they are forbidden to throw snowballs at each other, and a regulation which people who know Montreal winters will appreciate. They are ordered to make paths through the snow before their houses, to all of which petty regulations did royalty subscribe sign manual. The Treaty of Ryswick closed the war between France and England the year before Frontenac died but it was not known in Canada to 1698. As far as Canada was concerned, it was no peace, barely a truce. Each side was to remain in possession of what it held at the time of the treaty, which meant that France retained all Hudson Bay but one small fort. Though the English of Boston had captured Port Royal, they had left no sign of possession but their flag flying over the tenantless barracks. The French returned from the woods, tore the flag down, and again took possession, so that, by the Treaty of Ryswick, Acadia, too, went back under French rule. Indeed, matters were worse than before the treaty, for there could be no open war. But while English settlers were spreading up from Maine, 
met French traders wandering down from Acadia, there was the inevitable collision, and it was an easy trick for the rivals to stir up the Indians to raid and massacre and indiscriminate butchery. For Indian raids, neither country would be responsible to the other. The story belongs to the history of the New England frontier rather than to the record of Canada. It is part of Canada's past, which few French writers tell, and all Canadians would fain blot out, but which the government records prove beyond dispute. Indian warfare is not a thing of grandeur at its best, but when it degenerates into the braining of children, the bayoneting of women, the mutilation of old men, it is a horror without parallel. And the amazing thing is that the white men who painted themselves as Indians and helped to wage this war were so sure they were doing God's work that they used to kneel and pray before the beginning of the butchery. To understand it, one has to go back to the Middle Ages in imagination. New France was violently Catholic. New England violently Protestant. Bigotry ever looks out through eyes of John's hatred, and in destroying what they thought was a false faith, each side thought itself instrument of God. As for the French governors behind the scenes, who pulled the strings that let loose the hell-dogs of Indian war, they were but obeying the kingcraft of royal master who would use Indian warfare to add to his domain. The English have sent us presents to drive the black gowns away, declared the Iroquois in 1702, regarding the French Jesuits. You did well, writes the King of France to his viceroy in Quebec, to urge the Abenakis of Acadia to raid the English of Boston. The Treaty of Ryswick became known as Quebec towards the end of 1698. The border warfare of ravage and butchery had begun by 1701, the English giving presents to the Iroquois to attack the French of the Illinois, the French giving presents to the Abenakis to raid the New England borders. Quebec offers a reward of twenty crowns for the scalp of every white man brought from the English settlements. New England retaliates by offering twenty pounds for every Indian prisoner under ten years of age, forty pounds for every scalp of full-grown Indian. Presently the young noblesse of New France are off to the woods, painted like Indians, leading crews of wild bushrovers on ambuscade and midnight raid and border foray. We must keep things stirring towards Boston, declared Vaudreuil, the French governor. Midwinter of 1704, Hertel de Roville and his four brothers set out on snowshoes with 51 bushrovers and 200 Indians for Massachusetts. Dressed in buckskin, with musket over shoulder and dagger in belt, the forest rangers course up the frozen river beds southward of the St. Lawrence and on over the height of land towards the Hudson, two hundred and fifty miles through pine woods and snow-padded and silent as death. Two miles from Deerfield the marchers run short of food. 
It is the last day of February, and the sun goes down over rolling snowdrifts high as the slab stockades of the little frontier town where hearth-fire smoke hangs low in the frosty air, curling and clouding and lighting to rainbow colors as the ambushed raiders watch from their forest lairs. Snowshoes are laid aside, packs unstrapped, muskets uncased and primed, belts reefed tighter. Twilight gives place to starlight. Candles on the supper tables of the settlement send long gleams across the snow. Then the villagers hold their family prayers, all unconscious that out there in the woods are still bush rovers on bended knees, uttering prayers of another sort. Lights are put out. The village lies wrapped in sleep. Still, Roville's raiders lie waiting, shivering in the snow, till starlight fades to the gray darkness that precedes dawn. Then the bush rovers rise, and at moccasin pace, noiseless as tigers, skim across the snow, over the drifts, over the tops of the palisades, and have dropped into the town before a soul has awakened. There is no need to tell the rest. It was not war. It was butchery. Children were torn from their mother's breast to be brained on the hearthstone. Women were hacked to pieces. Houses were set on fire. And before the sun had risen, thirty-eight persons had been slaughtered, and the French rovers were back on the forest trail, homeward bound with one hundred and six prisoners, old and young, women of frail health and children barely able to toddle were hurried along the trail at bayonet point those whose strength was unequal to the pace were summarily knocked on the head as they fagged or failed to ford the ice streams twenty-four perished by the way of the one hundred and six prisoners scattered as captives among the indians not half were ever heard of again the others were either bought from the indians by quebec people whose pity was touched or placed round in the convents to be converted to the catholic faith these were ultimately redeemed by the government of massachusetts new england's fury over such a raid in time of peace knew no bounds yet how were the english to retaliate to pursue an ambushed indian along a forest trail was to follow a vanishing phantom. From earliest times Boston had kept up trade with Port Royal, and of late years Port Royal had been infested with French pirates who raided Boston shipping. Colonel Ben Church of Long Island, a noted bushfighter of gunpowder temper and form so stout that his men had always to hoist him over logs in their forest marches, went storming from New York to Boston with a plan to be revenged by raiding Acadia. Roville's bushrovers had burned Deerfield the 1st of March. By May, Church had sailed from Boston with 600 men on two frigates and half a hundred whaleboats on vengeance bent. First he stopped at Baron St. Castin's Fort in Maine. St. Castin, it was who led the Indians against the English of Maine. The baron was absent, but his daughter was captured with all the servants, and the fort was burned to the ground. 
then up fundy bay sailed church pausing at passamaquoddy to knock four frenchmen on the head pausing at port royal to take eight men prisoners kill cattle ravage fields pausing at basin of mines to capture forty habitants burn the church and cut the dikes letting the sea in on the crops pausing at bow basin the head of fundy bay in august to set the yellow wheat fields in flames then he sailed back to boston with french prisoners enough to ensure an exchange for the english held at quebec no sooner had english sails disappeared over the sea than the french came out of the woods st castin rebuilt his fort in maine the local governor who had held on with his gates shut and cannon pointed while church ravaged port royal village now strengthened his walls acadia took a breath and went on as before a little world in itself with the pirate ships slipping in and out loaded to the water-line with boston booty with the buccaneer basset throwing his gold round like dust with the brave soldier bonaventure losing his head and losing his heart to the painted lady widow freneuse who came from nobody knew where and lived nobody knew how and plied her mischief of winning the hearts of other women's husband she must be sent away thundered the priest from the pulpit straight at the garrison officer whose heart she dangled as her trophy she must be sent away thundered the king's mandate but the king was in france and madame freneuse wound her charms the tighter round the hearts of the garrison officers and bid her time to the scandal of the parish and in impotent rage of the priest was she vixen or fool this fair snake woman with the beautiful face for whose smile the officers risked death and disgrace was she spy or adventurous she signed herself as widow freneuse and had applied to the king for a pension as having grown sons fighting in the indian wars she will come into this story again snake-like and soft-spoken and appealing for pity and fair to look upon but leaving a trail of blood and treachery and disgrace where she goes the fur trade of port royal at this time was controlled by a family ring of latours and charnaises descendants of the ancient foes and they lived a life of reckless gaiety spiced with all the excitement of war and privateering and matrimonial intrigue such was the life inside port royal outside was the quiet peace of a home-loving home-staying peasantry few of the farmers could read or write the houses were little square norman cottages wood boxes the commandant called them with the inevitable porch shaded by the fruit trees now grown into splendid orchards by diking out the sea the peasants farmed the marshlands and saved themselves the trouble of clearing the forests trade was carried on with boston and the west indies no card money here 
the farmers of Acadia demanded coin in gold from the privateers who called for cargo, and it is said that in time of such raids as Colonel Church's, great quantities of this gold were carried out by night and buried in huge pots, as much as five thousand Louis d'Ors, pounds, in one pot, to be dug up after the raiders had departed. Naturally, as raids grew frequent, men sometimes made the mistake of, of digging up other men's pots, and one officer lost his reputation over it. All his knowledge of the outside world, of politics, of religion, the Acadian farmer obtained from his parish priest, and the word of the curé was law. End of section 21. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.